0: the Eyes Health podcast. I'm joined here today by Daniel Lewis, who is a senior data analyst at the Office of Refugee Resettlement and is also a member of our inaugural advocacy board. Thanks for joining the show, Daniel.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Alex.
0: Well, let's just jump right into it. I I think some people may know you from your very passionate speech at the at fda call a couple months back but for those of you who didn't for those of our listeners that didn't get that introduction would you mind just giving us a brief introduction of how you got involved with long COVID and uh how you got here
1: yeah sure you know i i got involved in long COVID the hard way by getting it i was infected with covid first in may 2022 and then again in july 2022 I had no symptoms after my first infection, recovered totally normally, but then after my second infection, just a couple months later, uh, I've had this horrible, lingering collection of symptoms. It it's basically ME/CFS, but caused by long COVID. Right. Uh, so I've got post-exertional malaise, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, extreme fatigue, persistent headaches, and so much more. So for the first few months, you know, I was just looking for treatment. Once I realized it didn't exist, I started figuring out how I could make treatments happen. You know, what would it take to bring treatments to the market? And I got involved in advocacy a little bit more with SolveME, talking to uh, my congressional representatives, and then I applied to be on that FDA panel. and I did that talk. And I've also uh, now talked to a CNN reporter for a CNN story. And I've got some other advocacy projects in the works.
0: Well, that's fantastic. And I know that advocacy is sorely needed in this space. And everybody dealing with uh, long COVID, MECFS and other post-viral illnesses really appreciate it. Um, throughout your experience, you kind of mentioned that it, things were... Easy-ish in the beginning, just from a symptom management standpoint, and then started going downhill after, um, after some time. What 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 were those things early on that you noticed that really helped versus hurt in that initial process?
1: Yeah, I mean, my symptoms weren't less than they are now. Early on, okay, okay, they just uh, really haven't changed much, to be honest. Right, I've had an extremely steady state uh since the day this all started in august 2022 um yeah i mean the first couple of months i didn't know what to do and i was just probably making things worse by exerting too much and then i started to learn how to pace kind of taught myself just noticed that when i rested i felt better so i rested more and then i felt a little bit better and kept resting until uh I just couldn't get any more gains from that um I also got put on a couple of good medications early on just for symptom management uh it took a couple of months to get them but once I had them they really helped that was a beta blocker which really helped with the dysautonomia uh brought my heart rate down brought kind of reduced those palpitations made the POTS not so severe and I uh, also was put on bupropion, which is a antidepressant, but I wasn't given it for depression because I don't have depression uh It was just for fatigue and brain fog, and it didn't help much with the brain fog helped a tiny, tiny bit with the fatigue
0: a little bit. <laughs> Out of curiosity, how did you go about finding some of these off-label uses, whether it's like a low-dose SSRI or I know naltrexone has been um, something that's helped some people in a a tenth of the dose? Yeah. What have been those keys to interacting with doctors that kind of know about this or coming into a physician's office with your own research and being able to present that and have a conversation with them?
1: Yeah. Early on, I wasn't doing my own research. I was just calling every doctor I could get my hands on and begging them to do something to help me. And and they were the ones that had the idea to do the beta blocker and the B uh, Once, the, once the, I was given those, and they were like, Alright, that's it. That's all we have for you. Then I started doing my own research. Uh, I obviously LDN is the one that comes up a lot. I did try that uh, I tried it for a month, and it had no effect. And I tried it at like a higher dose than people normally use. I don't know if Mm -hmm. that would make it have more of an effect or not. Um, I do think maybe I should try it again. But yeah, that was was one where I actually shopped around for a doctor just to prescribe that. And I, I hired a health advocate who was very expensive. And she knew of a doctor who prescribed LDN. So I started working with that doctor just to get the LDN. Gotcha. Because none of my other doctors curious. would prescribe it. I was even at a long COVID clinic and my wow. uh, provider at the long COVID clinic wouldn't prescribe any medications
0: for me. Wow, that's surprising and discouraging at the same time. Um, it was very discouraging.
1: Uh, yeah, she wanted me to do physical
0: therapy, like an exercise program. And that was it. Yeah. yeah. I, I've, we've, we've definitely heard about instances like that and I think it's a lot of it, it's difficult to figure out how to draw that line, I think, on a provider side of things where there, there's no standard of care and kind of going after, quote unquote, deconditioning and trying to go after physical therapy and occupational therapy is ultimately like maybe one piece of the puzzle. But having that be just the full course of treatment, as I have yet to see many people that have purely benefited from uh, physical Therapy.
1: Yeah, I think physical therapy can be helpful if you don't have post-exertional malaise. If you Mm -hmm. have POTS, there are like POTS exercise protocols that people absolutely are helped by, no question. Uh, But for those of us with post-exertional malaise, it's contraindicated. So it was kind of crazy that she uh, sent me to a physical therapist. On the other hand, I will say occupational therapy was helpful to me. I saw an occupational therapist. And that was all about helping me pace better. So he was the one that helped me figure out to use a shower chair to kind of uh, reorganize things in my house so that the objects that I would need more frequently would be closer to hand uh, and I wouldn't have to exert so much to go fetch them. So that, that was helpful.
0: That, uh, that's a good piece of information for, for those of the listeners that aren't particularly familiar with what occupational therapy does. Would you mind just just describing what that process looked like in a little more detail?
1: Yeah, I don't know exactly what it is. To be <laughs> honest, <laughs> you know, phys- all I know is the physical therapists I met with either wanted to test me for like specific neurological issues, like vestibular issues specifically, and they wanted me to exercise. And then the occupational therapist I saw didn't do any of that. And he just wanted to figure out how to help me get through the day in an easier way without requiring so much exertion. Um, and I I think that may be closer to what occupational therapists do. Like they help you reorganize how you're doing things and learn new strategies for coping with deficits you have or limitations you have. Um, I'm not sure.
0: To be honest. I, I think honest. I think you hit it right on the head. That's that's what my description is going to be too. So we can we can leave it at that. Doubling down on pacing and kind of how you figured that out yourself, plus with this occupational therapist, what are the? And obviously, I know this is very individualized to each person, but you you kind of mentioned that you figured out how to do it on your own. What are those signals that you need to take a step back from an energy standpoint, or even preemptively do some things to prevent? getting to that point where you feel like you're about to crash.
1: Yeah. Early on, I was not, you know, I I was, I was such a mess that I wasn't doing anything rigorously or objectively. It was just, why do I feel like utter crap today? Oh, actually I did more than usual yesterday. I wonder if that's significant. And then once that had happened a few times, being like, oh, every time that I, kind of do more than my usual amount. The next day I feel worse than my usual level. So then I experimented with it. Like, let me just not do anything today. I'm just going to rest today. And then the next day I felt Mm. significantly better. So it was like kind of clear Mm. for me. The other thing that made it easier for me than for other people, I think is that I have like, in addition to the post exertional malaise, which is delayed, a delayed response Mm -hmm. to exertion. I also have an immediate response to exertion so you know i have pots so if i stand up or if i exert my heart rate goes up a lot i wear a a garmin watch that i had from before long covid that has continuous heart rate monitoring so i could see my heart rate going up immediately um i also uh would get chest pain on exertion my headaches would get worse on exertion So, I I was getting this instant feedback when I was pushing things. So, it it helped me like stop in the moment instead of having to like wait for a delayed response to see if that was too much.
0: Right. Yeah. That's, I I can see how that might make things uh, a little more clear. I I know that a lot of the danger associated with post exertional malaise is you. You don't know it's going to be bad until the next day. And then it gets really bad. Um, I, within the day-to-day structuring of symptom management, I know that we've talked in the past about like using Google sheets or something to track symptoms. What, what has been those things that have been helpful for you in, in the realm of figuring out exactly what's helping, what's hurting and how to increase that baseline of, uh, of energy management?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I've tried two different things, both just, you know, things I did myself in a spreadsheet. Early on, I had this idea that maybe I could track because I knew the heart rate was an issue and I knew I had to stay under a certain heart rate. So once I was on the beta blocker, my heart rate had come down a bit. I tried to do this thing every day where I would like first thing in the morning, walk as many steps as I could before my heart rate hit 90 beats per minute. Mm. And, you know, it was never a ton of steps, it was a handful of steps. And I was like, maybe there will be a pattern there. So I did that for over a month. And there was just no pattern. I in retrospect, I don't think it was like that good of an idea. It was just something I came up with. Um, What I started more recently, when I got the first when a doctor finally gave me a treatment that I thought would treat my condition and not just be some symptom management, Um, I came up with a system where every day I just mark on a scale from one to five, how I'm feeling that day. So one is post-exertional malaise, total crash, three would be baseline, five is perfectly healthy. I never have any fours or fives, you know, it's baseline or worse. Um, my hope is one day it'll go to a four or five, but it hasn't yet. And, um, for with that, at least I've been able to see like, you know, how many baseline days do I have in a row? When am I crashing? And I, I take some notes each day, not, not every day. If, if something meaningful happened that day, I'll make a note, like started a new medication stopped a medication or did something that I think might cause a crash. Cause it was way too much exertion for me. Um, and then I get this like longitudinal line chart that just shows me like how things are bouncing up and down each day. And, and that was interesting because, um, started it a few months ago. And then I just did a course of 15 days of Paxlovid and the first couple of days of Paxlovid, you know, nothing, nothing really changed. But then for the rest of the time I was sitting at baseline consistently every single day, day after day, maybe even feeling 10% better. And I was able to see that in the data because there was this like horizontal line that went on for two weeks where for the previous few months,
0: I my longest streak had been like one week. Mm. Uh, that's encouraging. I'm glad that, uh, that you found a little bit of relief with that. And I think you touched on a really great point where, uh, especially when you're trialing different medications, you're increasing or decreasing activity, it's really difficult to actually identify how you're improving without having some sort of data to back it up. I know with me, it was on some of my worst days, I would think, oh, this is what it's like all the time. And on some of my best days, I would think, oh, this is what it's like all the time, either due to the blessing or the curse of, I think, having a short memory when it comes to this stuff. It's uh, it, it was something that was difficult for me to I- identify over the course of two, three weeks, or even a month. So it, it sounds like you had a decent degree of success in quantifying what, what's helping and what's hurting.
1: Yeah. It's the best I can do. I mean, it's, it's pretty limited just to have this, like, basically three point scale, cause I never go to four or five and it's just generally to capture all my symptoms. I've tried, I've tried tracking s- more symptoms more individually, but it's always hard to, you know, say is like, is this headache a three or a four? And it, cause it varies so much within the day, even. Yeah, so it's the best Yeah, thing. yeah. And <laughs> the point about like, you, you think it's going to last forever, whether you're feeling bad or good, like whatever your current state is, you think is going to be your permanent state. And it's never true. There's so much fluctuation with this.
0: Absolutely. You, you hit it. Flu- fluctuation, I think, is the, the best word that I could, could put on it as well. Um, so getting a little bit more macro here for a second if there were one or two structural or very tactical things that you could change about how we as a world manage long COVID and other complex chronic illnesses, what, what would those things be?
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, it's always, how do we get treatments? What is it going to take to get treatments? How much research funding do we need? What institutional structures do we need to set up to flow that money into, to turn that money into good research? that turns into treatments. So I think we do need a strong basic research program simultaneous with research on biomarkers and animal models that will be used for drug development simultaneous with clinical trials on the uh, drugs that we already have available and can start trialing, either because they're off-label or because they've previously been in development for other conditions. And I don't think there's, anywhere close to as much research funding for all of these as there needs to be. Um, you know, the, the estimate I saw just last night of just lost wages from long COVID just in the United States was on the order of hundreds of billions of dollars. And, you know, we're spending millions, basically, on research funding. So it's off by several orders of magnitude from the scale of the So I'd like to see, you know, billions of dollars spent on research funding in the US alone and billions more spent in other countries and um, for that to continue year after year until this problem is solved and the job is done. And and I want kind of what AIDS has, you know, they have the Office of AIDS Research in the National Institutes of Health, um, specifically in the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. And they also have an office in the uh, office of the director for coordination of AIDS research across uh, the different institutes and universities. And I think we'd need both, both an office for coordination in the office of director and a permanent office in one of the institutes with dedicated billions of dollars of research funding
0: per year absolutely i think I think you hit it right on the head the uh the research paper that keeps me up at night was from David Cutler at uh Harvard who estimated that the total economic impact, including lost wages quality of life um was three point seven trillion and you just yeah, i think that also it, has, like health care you know, expenses and healthcare expenses yeah that that was the third one thank you so that 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 just boggles the mind and i know there's been some statistics that have said that from a payer standpoint you're looking at an average of $9,000 a year per patient which anecdotally in my mind is a little low i'm i'm curious to get your your take on that from a like spend standpoint from what you've heard
1: no that sounds about right i mean it's it's hard to spend a lot of money on this because there are no treatments so that money is just being spent mm-hmm. on office visits on pretty standard testing you know the, it, we're not getting specialty treatments i think if we if there was like some scarce biologic that came to market and could sell for twenty thousand dollars a year then we would see that number go up but but it would be for one year because you'd get the treatment right and then you'd get better and then you move on with your life uh that nine thousand dollars a year kind of needs to continue on ad nauseum because you're not solving anything and people are going to continue to use healthcare to try to solve the problem even if it doesn't work
0: right i i think that's a great flag to point out just that that's purely like stabilizing and not even improving it costs nine thousand dollars a year maybe not even stabilizing just looking for for some okay, sort okay, of answers go
1: up because you you kind of start with the low-hanging fruit and get like an mri which might be a few hundred dollars but then you, you need to go up to okay now i'm going to try ivig which is thousands of dollars or you know biopsies various types of procedures stellate ganglion block you know things will get more and more expensive as you uh, lose the low-hanging fruit so yeah i, I think yeah, that your costs I, are going to go up i also you know the, the CDC household poll survey has been showing that the percentage of Americans saying they have long COVID has been going down over time. I, I don't really believe that. I think that's because um, we've gotten worse at testing. So if you now have the symptoms of long mm-hmm. COVID, you may not know it was caused by COVID and you think it's right. maybe something else. Um, for, uh, the good research shows that Probably the number is going up because reinfections are a risk for long COVID. Like for me, where I had it first in May and then again in July. And, you know, the, the more people get reinfected and almost everyone's been infected at this point, at least once. A lot of people have been infected multiple times. And the more times you're infected, the more likely you are to get long COVID. So I think we're going to see more people right. with long
0: COVID, uh, not fewer. Absolutely, um, closing out here, if there was one piece of advice you could give to somebody that was first starting out on this journey, what, what would it be?
1: Oh, it's the same advice that everyone gives, which is stop, rest, pace. Do not test your limits, do not exert yourself, do not exercise, You know, just stop, lie down, rest as much as you can to an extraordinary degree, more than you ever thought you would need to before, and maybe then slowly test your limits from there. Yeah,
0: I think that's a that's a great piece of advice. And actually, we, we asked this question at the end of each session, and I think that's the first time that's come up. So really appreciate it, and really appreciate you taking the time today. Um, While well, this has been the Eyes Health podcast, we will see you next week. Thank
1: you.